Hello, Dan. Hey, Tian Tian. How's it going? It's a big weekend in Utah, Dan. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> What's happening in Utah? Um, well, we're going to be watching films. So we're watching both the Sundance Film Festival virtually, um, obviously, as most things are virtual this weekend, or this year, I should say. Um, but this weekend is the virtual Sundance Film Festival. Um, so we are recording on January 31st, the last day of the first month of 2021. <laughs> These Oof. markers of time have become increasingly important to me Yeah. this last year. And right. then also, it's a huge weekend um, for in basketball as far as the Utah Jazz, because they are number one in the West, which hasn't yes, been a indeed. while. Yeah. So this is uh this will be I think this will be the first part in a two part episode. I have a feeling we're gonna go long. Um I we'll see. We'll see. But I'm Well if we're talking about Utah, yes. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and so this is this is our somewhat contrived uh <laughs> format, which is we we figured, you know, since the Sundance Film Festival is going on, um and Tian Tian is um spoiler alert from Utah or grew up in Utah. Yes. We'll get we'll I... get more into that later. <laughs> <laughs> we figured that we would take this opportunity since Sundance is going on to talk a little bit about maybe some of your memories of Sundance since sure. that was a big part of your childhood and and how you and your mom hung out um sure. if you want to do that. And then also talk about this movie that we just watched uh on the third day of Sundance, El Planeta. Um and then we'll come back maybe later in this episode maybe on another episode if we're long-winded as we normally are and talk about the utah jazz then and now so tian tian's memories <laughs> of watching watching the utah jazz as a championship team back in the 90s and then the current utah jazz which uh we, we just watched them play a game um against the nuggets so we'll have a, mm -hmm. a kind of comparison point yeah were you can i just ask though because i'm a little bit behind on the nba um this month what else have you been watching do you have any just sort of like broader insights about you know where teams are where the lineup is the only thing that i watched was yeah. the end of that lakers celtics game yesterday mm -hmm. and i yeah that was exciting um 96 95 was the and and at the end of that game, LeBron, I have to say, he was celebrating as if he was like on the number one team in the West. <laughs> the Lakers were celebrating as if they were the Jazz. It was exciting uh -huh. to see. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. I mean, so did you? So so the Jazz right now are number one, um, and they just came off of an eleven-game winning streak, which is a lot for. Yeah. <laughs> for the NBA, eleven games in a row is a lot. No matter. Unfortunately, where you are. we jinxed it because we decided uh -huh. to watch this Jazz Nuggets game today. Right when they um, they they lost they, they lost that record. Um, they are no longer um, they are no longer on that streak. Um, but I I look so I looked at the games that they won the eleven games that they won, and they're not against the greatest teams yeah um they did beat the bucks which is very impressive and they they beat a lot of good teams but it feels a little bit like maybe a like a less difficult part of their season um yeah the, the nba is kind of like crazy right now i think it's very unpredictable 
Yeah, I was gonna. I wanted to ask you that because that's so much my sense from just looking at the standings.、Mm-hmm. Um, it, actually, especially the bottom of the standings for teams that are still in playoff contention in both the East、yeah. and the West. Yeah, so many teams are in contention. A lot of bad teams that everyone was、mm-hmm. convinced were going to be awful、mm-hmm. are like. F- Around five hundred, meaning they have as many wins as losses, which is generally、mm-hmm. like a pretty good record, and will get you into the playoffs. I think there are a lot of factors. I mean, obviously, COVID is a big factor. Like a lot of players are regularly missing games because of、yeah. either they have COVID or they're under COVID protocol, right? Like they're under、yeah. quarantine.、Um, so, and and a lot of games have been canceled, and a lot of games have. Been played with only like seven people on the bench, which I think is the minimum number you need for a game to go on. So obviously there are a lot of contingencies that aren't normally there,、um, but I also feel like psychologically people are kind of all over the place, you know,、um, which which leads to really unpredictable results.、Um, and as we were watching this game, Tantian, I was texting you about how thinking about how often a professional Athlete like someone in the NBA is at their peak、mm. is really reassuring for me as a writer,、um, because as a writer, I,、mm, go ahead. I have a sense of where you were going with that, but just to give like a little bit of、um, context for our listeners, so we were talking about this really in relation to、um, Nikola Jokic versus Jamal Murphy on the Nuggets team, and I was also. Jamal Murray, <laughs> and I was thinking about this because、um, Donovan Mitchell, you know, has just been having this incredible、um, record-breaking season this year,、mm. and、um, you know, I remember last year during the playoffs, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell really like, kind of like grabbed their sort of like,、um, you know, grabbed their claim to stardom in that series against one another, and they were、yeah. really seen as like two sides of sort of a similar coin. And yet Jamal Murray has sort of like fallen off of that peak、um, since then. And I don't know if you saw this, Dan. There was a very awkward interview that Donovan Mitchell did after、um, a game where Shaq really prodded him a lot and said, you know, for all of X Y Z reasons, I see you as a great player, but you don't have what it takes to be a superstar. And so you know now this has like really sort of like raised that question about like how how much greatness do you need do you need to in order to like actually prove that you're a great player a superstar like what it what are the things in your past that prove that you're you know、um, your star is on the rise versus that you your star has fallen and that you're you know below like your potential or something. Turns out the NBA is just like academia. <laughs> Tell our, in, tell our non-academic listeners what you mean. The old heads just say the same shit to the people、yeah. coming up. You know, the what was the、um, the feedback that you've seen、um, uh, an instructor give a college student? We, we were talking about this recently, but maybe we could do some of the like highlights of things that we've seen. Like, right,、um, you you write like a high schooler and not a college student. <laughs> For、Things、example,、like、that, you write like you don't have a college education, like you're not college educated. <laughs>、right. Was actually、right. the feedback.、Um, right. That's the academic equivalent of like, like you don't have what it takes to be an all star. 
Right. That's that's nice. Shaq. That's Shaq's um, essay commentary style. It seems. Yeah. Yeah, but like, it, it's it's nice to remember how. I mean, if you look at any player, really, like how often are they playing at their peak in a way that is sort of like representative of what people see as their potential? Mm-hmm. And I think it's like 50% of the time, if mm-hmm. not less, you know, like people have bad stretches, people have bad years even. And like, what if we took that as the realism of just like what human beings can handle, you know? Yeah. And if you thought of that in terms of you as a writer, like, I don't know about you, but I would be willing to venture because you're an academic and like all academics are the same in this regard (laughs) that every day you wake up expecting to be like the best version of yourself as a writer. And so every day, almost every day ends in disappointment, Mm, right? Because, because almost no days can you reach that mark. Um, But if we think about like how, like a player, like even like a great player, when they actually play at their peak, it's like 20 to 40% of the time. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time they're really not at their peak and they're like, you know, um, and I don't know, like that, that was a really reassuring thought for me as a writer. Like if, if I could really hold that, then I could wake up and be like, oh, you know, only like 20 to 40% of the days will I really like do what I'm supposed to be able to do. And the rest of the time I won't. And maybe those are just human ratios for any kind of trying to do stuff. Yeah, or you could think about, you know, like, who are the players that manage to be very good at convincing people to remember how they were at their best Mm. versus, like, how they are most of the time? So, I mean, I think of Steph Curry as a player like that, actually. Steph Curry from the Golden State Warriors Mm. is so much a player who... um, I think, you know, if you actually look at what is happening on the court in, like, any random game, he's not sort of, like, he's not necessarily the most exciting, most sort of um, peak player at any time. And yet, like, the memories of who Steph Curry has been in the past, of, like, the potential of, you know, who he has been in the... It just reminds me of how in academia, it's like, there's so many people who are just really great at conferences, Um, academic conferences giving talks and then you know like the memory of that is so strong that actually their actual publication record or their actual you know teaching whatever record um that is used as part of the professional profile is you know not necessarily as strong but actually the memory is the memory that they create is so strong um i think it's because you know steph curry is sort of like a player who at his best can really move you the person who sees Mm. him to feel a certain way and i think Mm. that that's like the difference between him and um i guess we could say jamal murray maybe we could say Jonathan (laughs) mitchell (laughs) since those are the names that come to mind most recently if jamal murray was a more charismatic memorable player you wouldn't have called him jamal murphy earlier on this (laughs) podcast (laughs) if only he like um used his towel 
more creatively over his head on the bench. That's right. You know, like... Yeah, really invoking biblical iconography whenever possible when the camera's mm -hmm. on you in Mm -hmm. ESPN. We are referencing um, a meme that is actually on our Instagram page. Um, (laughs) Follow us at watchingfilmpod on Instagram. Um, but Curry Curry likes to drape a towel over his head in a kind of shawl-like manner, and it's it's a real flex, I would say. It looks very cool. <laughs> <laughs> it it both says like I'm very tired and I'm very important at the same time, and which I've not given a lot. A lot. Of, I've given a lot. <laughs> I've given so much that I like can't have a peripheral vision right now like my (laughs) i can only (laughs) i only have enough to process what's immediately in front of me um so before we get back to talking about the jazz and the standings um i'd like to shift to thinking about sundance a little bit and dan so this was actually your first time albeit virtually attending sundance looking at a movie at sundance so I wanted to just sort of like start with you and see like what has that festival meant to you, you know, in the past, like when you hear about the Sundance Film Festival, um, because, you know, I really grew up with that festival. So I, I think mm-hmm. I have some different associations. Yeah, I don't have a lot of associations, to be honest. I mean, I think I told you, I don't think I've ever been to like a real festival, Um real in the sense of like one of the main festivals that you hear about a lot right i think i went to see a couple of movies at the chicago film festival one year but oh yeah i hey we went together we i think we did together yeah do you remember what we saw i think that we saw like a shorts program and then i think we right. also saw were you there for that screening um about the tv reporter that was called christine Yes, 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 right. yes. We, the I think Rebecca we saw Hall that. movie. Yes, Rebecca Hall. Right, right. Um, yeah, but like, I, I don't know. Would you, do, do you, does it make sense when I say like, I don't think of that as a real festival or is that insulting? No, it's not a real festival. It's <laughs> okay. <in> AMC. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. All I did was take the six up from Hyde Park and like go see a movie at the AMC which I would normally do anyway. Um, And they don't get a lot of premieres, right? Which is why I think of it as like not really a real festival. So yeah, I don't, I don't really have much of a history of festivals at all. Um, But I I gotta say it was really exciting to, I mean, like all I did was like pay for a ticket online and then show up at the requisite time and start the stream, (laughs) um, you know, but it like, it felt like something, you know, It, it felt exciting to watch something and also know that other people, we're watching it at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think that I'd be curious to just to hear what it means to you whenever you would like hear that this movie was a Sundance movie or this movie was sort of like, um, you know, this movie was like discovered at Sundance or something, because I think that that label does like does culturally mean so much now for um Mm. you know even just sort of like the larger movie going at least art house movie going public um and i think that you know it just so happened that this movie el planeta which was a movie a spanish movie directed by amalia ullman the one that dan and i saw um this weekend 
that really, you know, it was just sort of a title from the list that stood out to both you and me. And it happened to be one of the few that had tickets remaining. That was still a premiere. And so we decided to go for it. But in a lot of ways, I think uh, this movie has like such a throwback movie to like what the Sundance style is. So that's sort of motivating this question that I have to you about like what you think that movie means, what sort of like your preconceptions about Sundance might have been. So maybe as a, a way to um, usher in our conversation about this movie, actually, you could say something about what is the archetype of the Sundance movie, and then we can do like an overview of which of those elements are in this movie, and then we can go from there. Because honestly, like, I didn't have any idea of like what a Sundance movie is. I know it's like oh, really? it tends to be, yeah, I I know it tends to be like an independent festival and so i assume they're like independent tea tendencies like when mumblecore was cool like a lot of mumblecore i assume right Right. but i didn't really know anything beyond that and actually like one of the first things you texted me while we were watching the movie was (laughs) oh this has strong francis ha vibes yeah it is such a sundance movie and i was like oh okay so francis ha the the greta gerwig movie um, which which I love, and I, actually I like I teach it often in my rom com class. Oh, you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach it as like, um, what would be a movie if the characters lived in a genre but the movie didn't? Oh, so like that's in a rom com, if like the movie is in the genre of rom com and the characters also rom com, what if you took a rom com character but put them in a world that was not a rom com? Mm. <clears throat> but it was interesting to me to hear you say like the Francis Ha type this that this was a Francis Ha type movie A and that the Francis Ha type movie is a Sundance movie. But maybe you can now say a little bit more about what is your idea of what a Sundance movie is and then we could go into talking about what happens in this movie. Sure. So I mean I think that that label of indie, American independent, um, art house global independent movie, like that label has shifted a lot. Um, since, you know, like, since Sundance's beginning day. So actually, you know, it's not that uncommon for big stars to sort of debut their kind of um, prestige pictures, um, anything that's actually going to be headed for the Oscars um, at Sundance. But I think that more than that, like, technical sort of like industrial funding label, um, the Sundance independent movie is something that has like a lot of quirkiness to it. So it's definitely not the Avengers. It's definitely like, um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's not like an action movie. There's not necessarily plot, you know, I think like the importance of plot just like changes very much for what people are expecting from sort of like the Sundance movie or at least like the cliche of what the Sundance movie is. So when I said Francis Hot. Let's come back to plot, because I I actually wanted to talk about the place of plot in this movie. But sorry, keep going. Yes. Um, So, I mean, I think quirkiness and style, above all, are so important to what makes the Sundance movie feel like, you know, what makes a movie become, like, kind of the festival darling of Sundance. So I was really thinking about, like, um, bigger titles that had really made it big from Sundance, like Little Miss Sunshine, Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, Napoleon Dynamite mm-hmm. was a Sundance movie. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that, where there's like a real offbeat quirkiness that, you know, uh, where it's sort of like 
the movie itself um, seeks to like set up its own sort of like DIY style or something. Hmm. Hmm. I was just thinking about quirkiness as an aesthetic category um, and in relation to the the aesthetic categories that Cien Nye talks about in her book on contemporary aesthetic categories. Mm. So hers are cute, zany, and interesting. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to think, how is quirky different from those? Because quirkiness is actually kind of related to all three. Like quirkiness Mm -hmm. is close to interesting, it's close to cute, and it's close Mm -hmm. to zany, but it's different. And so I was trying to think like, what actually is quirkiness if we tried to describe it? And also, why didn't it it make it into Cien Nye's (laughs) modern aesthetic categories? Well, I can't answer that last question, but I think of quirkiness as having like a real, actually like more indie DIY do-it-yourself component to it, right? Like there's something sort of like that at least attempts to be sort of homegrown about quirkiness. Um, Hmm. Is it more self-conscious than the other three? Is it more self-aware than cuteness or zaniness? I'm not sure about that. You have a sense that it is? I think so. Like, if someone's being quirky, like, they know they're being quirky. Um, Like, there's a kind of put-on-ness, maybe, about quirkiness. So I have some opinions that actually changed about that after I listened to the Q&A with the filmmaker Uh after our film um, yesterday. So Amalia Ullman, you know, did a a Zoom call with one of the festival programmers right after the premiere. And she revealed in that Q&A that um, the director, Amalia Ullman, who also stars in the movie, is the protagonist, Leo, um, that she herself is autistic. And there was something about that revelation in the Q&A that actually um, made me see some of the movie differently. Like it made me realize... Mm -hmm. You know, the movie um, is incredibly funny. El Planeta is incredibly funny, incredibly sort of um, insightful and I think um, just sort of brilliant at doing that kind of light touch. But actually a lot of the awkwardness is from maybe like reading cues incorrectly. Hmm. And so I think like or reading a situation incorrectly Um And on the one hand, that's sort of like a slapstick genre move. But on the other hand, I think like having that sort of personal revelation from the director about sort of um, what does inform her worldview to, I think, like helped me sort of see that, you know, maybe it's not necessarily self-aware. Like quirkiness doesn't depend on self-awareness all the time. Mm -hmm. It could just be, you know, having a really different view of the world. Maybe this is a good spot to give an overview of the shape of the movie and talk about like what are sort of the main events of it, um, give a sense of the lay of the land, and then we can kind of dive in deeper. What do you think? Sure. So I actually have the um, summary from the Sundance catalog. Would that be Mm. helpful? It's just sort of a starting spot. I love that. We're not going to Cavell patchwork it this time. Um, But (laughs) actually, and no spoilers this time. Also. No spoilers, but also like I, I, I have thought, I, I don't know if I've actually done this in a class, but like one thing that I've at least thought of doing in a class is making 
them read the like official plot summary of a movie and and as a way of figuring out like how did this person whoever wrote the plot summary what did they think the story mm-hmm. was in the in mm-hmm. the movie right so yeah this sounds good all right so the sundance catalog says about el planeta after her father's death leo leaves her life as a fashion student in london and returns to her hometown of gijon spain where her mother is on the verge of eviction. The two scheme their next meal by selling personal items online and running up tabs based on extensive lies. Their impending misfortune does not stop the pair from dressing up in their best fur coats, heading to the mall to sample makeup, and buying cute shoes, as long as they are returnable. The grifting is delicious, and their familial bond over common tragedy strengthens as evident doom nears. I wonder if this would also be a good time now for us to share the haikus that we wrote about this movie. Sure. I think that you should go first, Dan, because I actually have something a little bit longer than a haiku. Oh, right. Okay. That's exciting. Um, Okay. So this is a practice that we started recently. Um, In case that you're tuning into the pod for the first time, you know, we don't want to leave any, we don't want to shame any listeners for not being there at the beginning. Yes. We assume that you're listening, Amalia. We assume that you searched your own name on every podcast yes. platform and are listening through every episode. So, uh, great movie, Amalia. We loved it. <laughs> also, hi, Patrick. Our beloved friend oh, Patrick is a, a, a regular listener. <laughs> hi, hi, Chaz and Zach. How do you Please think? Please uh, remember to leave us a five-star review on, on iTunes. <laughs> Zach. How do you feel? How do you think Amalia is going to feel about the fact that she got a shout out that was not any more significant than the ones we just gave other people who did not write and direct the movie that we're talking about for this whole podcast? Don't let that stop you from leaving a five star <laughs> review, Amalia, on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> okay, so so here's my here's my haiku about this movie. A divine peace falls when the only unknown is the question of when. Oh, that's really lovely. That's a beautiful tribute to this movie. Thanks, DT. Yeah. All right, I want to hear yours now. Well, I have something a lot longer because I felt like um, it was, you know, really difficult for me to fit this in haiku form. So I hope you don't mind that I um, just went free form with this one. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, so this is the um, poem that I wrote inspired for El Planeta. The best thing about Zara clothes is that they can be altered easily. (laughs) Upcycled and further eccentrified, the cheap fabrication yields so easily to being accessorized with palm shop brooches. The shameless animal print that blurs class lines serves so well as a ticket to free meals and bins, while it blurs all five fingers, whatever your mothers are quick to take. Zara clothes can be just perfect for any occasion when you and your mother are going Grey Gardens crazy. Wow. Okay, not not only is that like an amazing account of the movie, it's also an amazing account of Zara. 
Yes. In a way that I feel like I feel like you explained Zara in a way that I've uh. always like sort of felt under the surface, but I've never heard anyone say out loud. Yeah. Thank That's you, Dan. Amazing. You know, Zara actually also um, not only does it show up in El Planeta, it also mm-hmm. shows up in a significant <laughs> background shot of the movie um, that we last saw together to the ends of the earth by Kurosawa Kiyoshi where mm. our protagonist is in Uzbekistan and yet mm. we can see like that Zara has sort of like penetrated even the, the background um, convenience store there. And this movie has a lot, El Planeta has a lot to say about globalism and fashion and so that was why it um, stood out to me as a possible entryway. I loved um, the the riffs on the animal print. So um, there's there's a lot in this movie. Uh, so it feels like we're now going to now that you gave the the overview of the plot synopsis, we'll mm-hmm. start to pick at threads that kind of wind their way through the movie. And one thread is this animal print. Um, so there's a scene where what's the what's the name of the protagonist again? Leo. Leo, right. Leo, like Leo the lion. Noir. Like the lion. And she has a <laughs> mug that says Leo on it that she drinks from often. Um, so there's this one time when she um, goes into, it's like a thrift store or like a, what would you? I would have said pawn it? shop actually, pawn but shop? I'm not sure if that's actually, if it's as predatory as right. that. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and but her and the clerk are wearing the same animal print, and then they end up. There's like, <laughs> and they're both awkwardly fashion students. They're both awkwardly fashion students, and they're both speaking not their native tongue, mm-hmm. right? And so they're both communicating in English. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, the we'll lingua get franca in... of fashion. Yeah, yeah, and like exchange students, which is what yeah. I was thinking at the time, right? Like. Um, so we'll we'll get into that later. There's a whole um, sequence where they they go on a date and they sort of spend 24 hours together, mm-hmm. and it's it's somewhat awkward, but it also like it's just the awkwardness of two people communicating in a language that neither of them would prefer in that moment, and that was like really kind of I, I remember that from being an exchange person, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I loved what you said about the, the animal print being such a, a great sort of class-shifting camouflage. Mm-hmm. Um, that was great. Let's talk more about that. Yeah, animals are interestingly... I was about to say at first that animals are in the background of this movie, hmm. but actually they're in the foreground. <laughs> they're kind of absent in their in their actual living animalness. But um, so this is a a film about um, this fashion student named Leo who has come home to live with her mother in their house that actually their mother is about to lose. So we get very much the sense that they could be evicted. You know, I think at the beginning of the movie, we get this um, time frame of two months from now, they will lose the house. Um, But the house is filled with actually these all of these middle class comforts and um chief among them are like all of these small decorations kind of like little tributes to the family cat that is no longer living um so you know like a lot of cat cushions cat calendars photos of the cat 
um, are sort of like scattered all around. And, you know, it really, it really adds to the going crazy Grey Gardens vibe of the movie in general, that these two women are surrounded by um, the love and grief of, for this missing cat. Wait, what's, what's Grey Gardens? Oh, Grey Gardens is um, a fantastic documentary about uh, Little Edie and Big Edie, who are two um, women, a mother and daughter. It's a documentary, and they were actually um, relatives of Jacqueline Kennedy, Jacqueline Onassis Kennedy. Um, and it's a very similar story, actually, because that's huh. about sort of like generational wealth that has evaporated and about poverty mm. that doesn't look like poverty. Okay. The the thing, yeah. So so one of the things that really stuck out to me from the Sundance um, plot description of the movie is that it mentions, it starts by mentioning tragedy, right? So it says, after the death of her father. Yes. And and so one way in which the, the Sundance description of the movie is really kind of different from the style and the tone and the structure of the movie is I remember you saying to me early in the in the screening that you were really fascinated by you know a depiction of poverty that doesn't look like poverty right yeah um and I would say you know it doesn't look like poverty in the sense that they're they're sort of like dressed in a way that they can pretend to be not poor enough to successfully like scam dinners and like like they can go into like a fancy dress shop and like scam dresses. It's that kind of thing where like the rich richness begets richness, right? Like you have it's to a, look. It's a very specific privileged precarity, I think. Mm -hmm. So the fact that for this two months, at least we have a comfortable roof over our heads. We still right. have the fur coats. We, um, we, I mean, I felt strongly that there was sort of a jet, you know, the kind of class standing that they are means that they probably had generational wealth, not just hmm. wealth in their lifetimes, um, but wealth that was handed down because of the way that they talk and the sense that they actually are culturally aware of things like ballet and um, mm. of art and fashion mm. and movies mm -hmm. that seems to actually suggest, you know, it's sort of the destitution that is coming to them is actually going to be new when it hits mm. and they're not prepared for it. And they're mm. not, they're not people who have survived that before mm. was I think part of the, um, the feeling that I got from this particular depiction. I think that's, that's a really nice way of capturing like a slight, but really important difference between this movie and a movie that we watched earlier this year, sorry, we mm. missed you. The new, the new Ken Loach movie, which is yes. also it's about a, and and you mentioned this comparison, and I thought it was a, a really great comparison to make. That movie is also about a family that's on the cusp of losing everything, and you can tell they're just holding it together, like one one thing going awry, like a job, you know, like losing a job or like you know an accident. One more medical emergency. One more medical, right? Just like just being kind of like one move away, like being on that kind of tightrope. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference is that movie, it, it totally feels really different, right? So when you said, you know, um, 
El Planeta is like an account of poverty that, that doesn't feel like poverty. It also doesn't feel like po- poverty in the film realist sense for us, the audience, right? It's not oh, yeah. like melodramatic. It's not like, 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 sorry, sorry, we missed you. It's just like grueling to watch because mm-hmm. you just, you're like, all the scenes of the family are scenes of pain. Right. right, just like the 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 family the family scenes are so intensely painful to watch, and this movie is so light, right? Like the the scenes for for the most part, except when like the electricity goes out. That's sort of the first mm-hmm. time that the mom and the daughter yell at each other. But otherwise, there's such a kind of like French whimsy to like <laughs> what the scenes are about. And it's I like a like... Charlie Chaplin style poverty. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, holes in the shoes, but the holes being funny. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that actually um, the director said that in the Q&A that one of the things she was thinking about referentially was pre-code cinema. Right. 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 And also, um, so at a very significant point in the movie, two characters say to one another, um, this is, you know, the end of an affair, and they say to one another as a goodbye, it could have been marvelous, divine. And those are two quips that are, um, you know, that really hit my ear because they're lines that happen um, at this very poignant moment at the end of the Ernst Lubitsch movie, Trouble in Paradise. And I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about the cinema of John Renoir, the French filmmaker especially his film Rules of the Game. Um, Trouble in Paradise and Rules of the Game are both movies, you know, also about, like, declining wealth, but also, Mm. in a way, like, that situation of poverty handled lightly until it's very serious, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So something Mm -hmm. where these are characters that don't realize, no, we really don't have a safety net until it's been pulled out from under them. And I think that that was something that really struck me as very different from the Ken Loach movie that we saw earlier this year, where even though that is sort of like we see them as a middle-class family that, you know, still has a roof, that still has certain comforts, even as their situation is increasingly dire. I think that family, you very much get a sense based on the genre and of the movie also that they're always aware that the safety net is, is not going to be there. Um, And part of the tragedy of El Planeta, but also part of like the incredible charm of it is that these are characters that haven't realized yet what kind of movie they're actually in or how like serious the situation Mm. is. And that struck me as something kind of similar to Frances Ha too. Although there we, again, Mm. we have like a very privileged character Mm. who partly because of her privilege is very blinded to serious consequences. Mm. I love, I love that comparison. And, so let's let's get into that a little bit more because so one question that i would have for you is is the mom in el planeta not actually aware is she actually oblivious of what's to come so Hmm. because there there's there's a kind of running thing where the, the mom and the daughter talk about what will happen when their scams catch up to them, right? right. <laughs> and, and you're kind of aware of it as they go on. So the mom, and this this was actually one place where I I, I wondered if the, the plot summary diverged a little bit, which is it, it seemed to suggest that the mom and the daughter take part in these cons equally. But mm. in my memory of the movie, it was primarily the mom, right? Yes, yes, yeah. correct. 
So, and, and the main con or the main technique that she uses is she goes into like fine dining restaurants, fancy stores, and has convinced the people working there that she's, I think, probably the wife of a, a prominent politician. And yeah, so, or that mm-hmm. she's, um, she's going to the Princess of Astorias Prize award ceremony. Right. Which is sort of like the right. recurring joke throughout the, the movie is like, we keep hearing about this award ceremony on the radio, the Princess right. of Astorias. Right, right. Yes, yeah, and, and we'll talk about that more, I think, because it, like, the, the credits, there's, there's like an end credits sequence that sort of, I think, exposes some of the, the, like, politically what is on the filmmaker's mind. Like, the movie is parable, and then she sort of, like, lays her political cards on the table in, in the se- yeah. in the end sequence. Yeah. Um, and there's also like, apparently like Martin Scorsese is going to be there. And I just didn't understand that. And I would love <laughs> for you as like a professional film person to explain to me, what is the relationship of Martin Scorsese to this movie? But maybe in a minute, not, not right away. Um, <laughs> I'll let you think about it and come up with a really good answer. <laughs> um, but so I wanted to say like, um, Right. So, so the main con that the mom uses is she'll like go order in the restaurant. She's like, oh, just put it on, you know, so-and-so's bill. And then as the movie goes on, you know, the shopkeeps start to say things like totally fine. As long as it's paid by the end of the month, you know, you, yes. you can tell like t- you're getting a sense of the time frame and that the time frame is getting tight. And so there is yes. a very light sense as the movie goes on that they're running out of time, but it doesn't feel like scary and melodramatic in the way that you you could think that a movie about people on the precipice of poverty might feel it's just like a Mm -hmm. very light sort of in at the edges of your awareness sense that like time you know the clock is ticking right Mm -hmm. and in some of these moments the the mom and the daughter talk about what will happen when the inevitable happens, which is yeah. that when, you know, the, the cons catch up with her and she says, oh, you know, I hear they have like really good food in prison or something. <laughs> and so, yeah, you're kind of saying like, oh, she, you know, she clearly hasn't, the whole thing hasn't sunk and she clearly isn't taking it seriously or she clearly, um, I, I'm, I'm like putting words into your mouth in a little bit, but yeah. you're sort of suggesting that like, if she really had grasped and processed the sort of fate that's to come that the movie wouldn't be so light but i Mm -hmm. i I, well i wonder if that was what you're saying and if it was do you think that's true or is this just her relation to what's going to catch up to her that was what i was saying i think that um this had to do with i think also why i think of quirkiness as not dependent on self-awareness it's existing pretty separate from it as just like not having a correct interpretation of the world and that being um I think what makes a lot of the lightness here possible I mean I think for the mother the mother really strikes me as such a sympathetic character Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though Mm -hmm. she's a con artist Mm -hmm. because you really do get the sense that you know this is a woman who's a survivor but who has never survived what is about to happen Hmm. yet like has never had to survive something of that scale yet Hmm. um but there's some really i don't know i mean this movie is so complicated in the way that it thinks about both feminism and prostitution Hmm. 
mm. and kind of like those two things together. I was curious if you know, like, if you feel like you you had a grip on what this movie you know was saying or um, what its vision was on feminism, because mm. <laughs> I think that that's sort of tied to the the question that you were asking me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Maybe one place to start would be to mention that th- feminism is brought up explicitly, explicitly and jokingly several yes. times. Yes. Right. So one time is when um, Leo is on a date with the pawn shop clerk, and uh, I-, I can't remember who brings it up first. But I think he says something like, "So why don't you wear heels?" Yeah. And then she says. He's like, is it like a feminist thing or? <laughs> also with um, another date that sort of, I guess you could call it a date that we see, mm. um, which is actually the first scene of the movie mm. where a man, you know, like comments, oh, in your profile picture, you had long hair, though. Right. When did you get your hair cut? Was it because right. of feminism? <laughs> right, 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 right. And then the other one is there's this one time when um, Leon and her mom are hanging out alone in the apartment and Leo is wearing a t-shirt that has like a boob window over an one amazing boob. shirt an amazing an incredible <laughs> shirt so there's a couple of incredible shirts with like there's little an... curtains over yes. one of the breasts and um you know they've been drawn so that you can see the transparent <laughs> window into her chest yeah so it, there's like a little plastic panel sewn into the cotton of the shirt and it has little blinds as you're saying um, it, it looked uncomfortable, to be honest. <laughs> um, and and wait, so I, I feel like getting the wording right is important here. So the mom doesn't notice that first. And then she says, like, look, look at my shirt. And wh- what does she say? I might not be able to remember this either. This is always the problem of seeing something at a festival is you really... Yeah have to rely on your memory um right. it makes me feel like andre bazan or something where like you can only screen a movie once and yeah. you have to just rely on your memory she says something like you know it's it's kind of like uh, feminism yeah <laughs> yeah so how would we characterize the tone in which feminism is brought up when it's brought up explicitly when it's brought up by name with a lot of confusion yes this movie that's a great word so I think when people are confused about something, they say feminist. Just like yeah. when undergrads talk about feminism. Yeah, yeah. It, it like feels feminist and we're like not <laughs> sure if it is, right? Hey, Dan, I have a joke for you. Uh-huh. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? How many? That's not funny. <laughs> I actually... Uh, have to credit Lauren Berlant with that joke. She was the one that I heard that from. I think that that joke works for everyone, no matter what your relation to feminism mm-hmm. is, because there's something that rings so so true and mm-hmm. so recognizable about that. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's significant to say because you know, like, feminism is really thought of as like, you know, a political position that means saying no to a lot of things, a lot mm-hmm. of fun things. Um, including humor, I think is one Mm -hmm. of like the, usually thought of as one of the early victims of feminism. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie that is so funny. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that that, you know, um, 
nothing in the Sundance catalog description would actually mm -hmm. lead you to realize like how funny, how um, mm -hmm. knowing, insightful, just really witty and brilliant the mm -hmm. movie that we saw is. And there's a different relation to feminism, I think, even there, because mm. it's about saying feminism is about making a series of commitments, but not necessarily against humor. Hmm. Maybe we should talk about some of the scenes that we found funny as a way of continuing to think about this question of feminism, right? Because yeah. I, I think that might get us closer to sort of like getting a sense of what's going on. Do you want to talk about some scenes that you found funny? Sure. Um, I mean, I think I'll start with like a lot of the scenes where fashion is shown are also really funny. And mm -hmm. I think that that is like another uneasy relation that the movie itself is really trying to wrestle with is like, how does fashion fit within the story of feminism mm. that, you know, has been received by someone like Leo, but also like, how is she working mm. within that industry and while still like trying to be her own person? Um, so you mentioned already the scene where she wears this incredible zebra print, very loud jacket, and mm -hmm. yet is, um, you know, I think like a lot of her fashion choices are really like, there's something so, there's so much tapping into like what is funny about the high fashion industry and what is sort of like um, inappropriate about like wearing these incredibly lush outfits in this incredibly small town Gihon where no one else besides other another fashion student is dressed like her mm -hmm. um, I mean it's almost like something from Schitt's Creek you know where like mm. the family that <laughs> loses their fortune and is mm -hmm. like reduced to this incredibly tiny motel like still has as their possessions <laughs> these like runway mm. outfits that make them mm. stick out as a sore thumb <laughs> Leo doesn't match the out extravagance of the outfits, though, unlike Schitt's Creek. Like in Schitt's right. Creek, the personalities <laughs> of the people are totally concordant with the like the fashions. But Leo is like a very sensible kind of serious person. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the other thing that really strikes me as so funny about this movie is the mother character mm. so leo's mother who is actually played by the director's um real life mother too is this really um so charming and absurdist of a character she has like all of these eccentricities like these beliefs in magic spells when right. we're first introduced to her she's putting you know like pieces of a newspaper in the freezer because she has to like freeze her enemies <laughs> as sort of a, a belief that it's an ongoing ritual through the movie. Right. Um, oh, is that, was that related to, I couldn't figure out. So they, they keep like eight to 10 glasses of gl glasses full of water on top of their fridge. And we see that at least a couple of times in the movie. Was that related to a spell too? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I so I I had forgotten if that was what that was for, and what my mind went to was like if the water gets shut off, you mm. know, we'll have water to drink. Oh, I hadn't considered that. But that would that would be another example, be another example of humor that also doubles as something serious, right? Like, and that's sort of like the director's underline. Like, she just shows us the like the top of the fridge that full of glasses of water without really like saying anything about it. Were there um, scenes that struck you as funny that 
you would like to bring up here? Yeah, so the the first moment that I realized that it was going to be a funny movie um, is the first scene that we see with Leo. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so the movie starts with um, you see the mom walking down the street in Guillon, or Guillon, I don't know how to pronounce the name of the town. I think you said I don't Guillon. either. Okay. I, but I, honestly, I, I don't speak Spanish well enough to know. And it's like Spanish, Spanish too. So we would have right. to know the like local dialect. I'll just go with what you said, which I think was heel. Um, but anyway, you see the mom kind of walking down the street and like very awkwardly trying to juggle a bunch of boxes, <laughs> large boxes. Um, and then the first line of the movie is her saying, "That's the last time I go pick up your online purchases once <laughs> once she gets home, right?" Mm-hmm. And then I think it then cuts to Leo in a cafe. Mm-hmm. And then this man sits down next to her and they're sort of doing awkward banter. Um, and you can't tell if it's like a date. You can't tell if it's like an interview. It's somewhere in that space of like strangers mm-hmm. meeting and, and trying to arrange something. And then it turns out pretty soon that he's um, soliciting her for sex or they're like mm-hmm. are making some kind of arrangement for like sex in exchange mm-hmm. for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a line when she says so you know how much how much money oh or um i think he asked like you know what were you thinking money wise and she says oh i I was thinking you know like 500 a night and he's like whoa 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 you're like she's like i read that i read that number on a blog right right and very condescendingly he's sort of like is like teaching her about her own rates in her profession right. <laughs> he's like well you're way off the mark but don't worry like we'll get we'll get there like he's like taking the the lead and he's like well for example it's like you know 20 euros for a blowjob around here mm-hmm. and then there's like a long pause and then leo's like hmm well you know i'm just thinking like there's this book that i really want and it's 1999 so like would i suck a dick for that book <laughs> <laughs> Which is like a wonderfully in control response, I think, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So that line is already funny. But then (laughs) but then the guy is like, hmm, well, I don't know. Is it like at the library? (laughs) (laughs) And that's when the conversation really goes kind of of takes a left turn into like another plane. Right. Because then now now he's like no longer in the negotiation with her for like sexual services now he's like helping her like oh hmm, yeah there's this book you really want you wouldn't suck a dick for it for for twenty dollars maybe it's at the library like like (laughs) like he's trying to solve her problem essentially the problem being there's this book that she really wants to read (laughs) that was really funny yeah so so much of the humor of this movie Besides, you know, being about the humor of being a daughter or like being home in a very small town after you've already lived in a large cosmopolitan city, it's about like the humor of being a student also Mm. and of Mm -hmm. being like in the world outside of the structure of school anymore and trying Mm -hmm. to like find your own path in that. And I I think that was what felt really charming to me and and also really reminded me of Frances Ha too. Mm. So what is actually your, maybe we can talk a little bit about Leo, um, because you gave a really great character description of the mom earlier. And in some ways, I feel like the mom is more easily capturable than Leo, you know, like the mom is a character in the sense of 
like I think you could you could sort of capture her in a couple of blunt strokes and that wouldn't be doing her a disservice, right? Like mm-hmm. she's someone who like really embodies those blunt strokes. What is your sense of how the movie tonally presents Leo? Because I think it's a little bit more ambiguous and a little bit more fuzzy than the mom. Yeah. Um, do you want to take a stab at that first? Yeah, so I'm just trying to think, like, what are the main scenes where we get a sense of Leo? Um, And so one sort of big set piece, which now in my mind is like the main set piece that I'm remembering, is when she goes on this date with this clerk, right? Mm -hmm. So she she meets him when she's checking out of the, the pawn shop or the thrift store, and he sort of like aggressively gets her WhatsApp info and it Mm -hmm. seems like she's not really into it Mm -hmm. but apparently she does arrange a date with him later in the evening and should we mention she's doing she agrees to that in large part because her mother is shoplifting so she's kind of like distracting him Mm. so that her mother can shoplift right okay i didn't i didn't realize that but that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense right and then there's this scene that the theme of prostitution is like very Mm was very evident there to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right right because we don't know how much he saw and there's like this suggestion you know leo's like in a really uncomfortable position because it's also mm-hmm. like if she if she right. like rejects this guy is he gonna call the cops like what did he right. see right yeah totally and then we see her like getting ready for the date and i seem to remember she's like getting ready in front of a mirror and she's sort of like is she singing along to a song that she has on or something mm-hmm. and she's was... cutting up zara clothing she's like right. upcycling the zara outfits right 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 yeah that was sort of an interesting scene because it was one of the few scenes that isn't in relation to somebody else right whether mm-hmm. it's in relation to like the potential client at the beginning or in relation to her mom, I feel like that's one of the few times where it feels like she's doing something because she wants to do it. Yeah. I don't know what your sense of that scene was. Well, she's, I mean, I think that the movie really um, takes pleasure in like her, you know, like her fashion choices and like very, I very strongly got a sense, oh, this is like a creative person. This Mm. is like a person who, you know, like, may not look like much on the outside but actually Mm -hmm. has like this well of sort of like creative bizarre ideas and Mm -hmm. is really like a weirdo on the inside Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so you know the clothing throughout the movie is really incredible funny interesting um and and that's sort of like the surest sign that we have that leo Mm -hmm. has like this incredibly um inner sort of like well of something special to her right Right. Yeah. And so she goes on this date and like they do talk a lot about fashion and about where they lived when they lived in London. Mm -hmm. So again, this idea of a movie that's proximate to a big city, right? They're like Mm -hmm. big city characters, but they Mm -hmm. just happen not to be in the big city at the moment. And the movie is so localized in this very small town on the northern coast of Spain. Um, and then it's implied that they spend the night together. Um, and then in the morning they're going for breakfast, right? Um, the guy's name is Amadeus. (laughs) (laughs) 
Amadeus, Amadeus. Amadeus, yeah. <laughs> and then he sort of like casually drops that he has a son and yeah. a wife and that he's married. Yeah. And and this immediately turns Leo off. Um, Understandably. When yeah, none of that was made clear. None before. of it was made clear and I think that's like that sort of makes clear also that she really liked him maybe or like mm-hmm. really was doing this also for her and not just for whatever other potential reasons. For a free meal or whatever. Right. Exactly. Um and then and then um, and then he he kind of like is trying to like finesse it and be like okay well mm-hmm. let's just like trying to make it not a big deal trying to like mm-hmm. bury bury the disclosure. But then she's like no this this is like this is it for me and she leaves and that's when they quote the end of trouble in paradise as you as you um brilliantly noticed so they it could have what, been marvelous what, and then divine it's and then she's like replies. right and then she's like fuck off and then fucks <laughs> off she handles herself so well in that scene in that yeah. really difficult moment yeah totally and then she goes back to the apartment and the mom is waiting for her she walks into the ocean first do you remember that's right which is the second moment i think that really mm-hmm. struck me as like oh we're seeing her on her mm-hmm. own and this mm-hmm. is who she is when she's mm-hmm. on her own definitely. she just quietly walks into the ocean sort of like cleanses herself definitely yeah she walks into the beach and and i really liked i like how terse and understated um, the director's style is, you know, like the beach, the beach is, is already kind of like a melodramatic location, you know? (laughs) And I think it's like, it's like very easy for a director to underline a protagonist Mm -hmm. walking into the beach barefoot Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. after like a difficult scene, Yeah, you know, but it's so not underlined by the director, Mm -hmm. uh, which I really like. And there was another scene where I forget where this was, but, um, oh, this was actually at the date the night before when Amadeus kind of like touches her face or holds her face. I forget why. And then she holds his face and the camera kind of like frames his face. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it feels like very, very intensely beautiful in that moment. Mm-hmm. But the scene lasts v- for a very short time. And yeah. I felt like I, I really felt the the economy and the terseness of of the directorial touch there yeah it's almost it's like a lubitsch touch hmm. <laughs> wait same more um, about that well you know i i think also we haven't yet mentioned this movie is in black and white so even though it was shot last year it's um you know and even though it's a very indie movie art movie thing to like shoot in black and white when you don't have a large budget to me the black and whiteness really seemed to just be another clue that what we were looking at was like an old style of classic filmmaking that is like you know um genre noir or ernst lubitsch and where you know lubitsch is a director who was really famous for something that was called quote unquote the lubitsch touch which is like just this very light witty way that he portrays Mm. sexual innuendo and Mm. jokes and sort of like um basically it's like this je ne sais quoi i guess that he adds to his movies that feels like a signature touch uh-huh hmm. Hmm. did you did you feel like that touch was being referenced here or was it just similar in this movie 
I think a desire to have a touch <laughs> similar mm. to that is is there. I mean, we see that in even like the the very like flashy um, PowerPoint style transitions. Mm. Yeah, the mm-hmm. movie. If you remember, mm-hmm. like these sort of like really gimmicky ways yeah. that the scenes transition, but it actually really works in the movie because it's just sort of like this. I keep going back to this phrase DIY, but again, like this DIY mm. sort of feeling that this. Yeah, she uses like wipes sometimes to transition, like diamond wipes, you know, Mm -hmm. like different, like the, like you said, like different settings that are available on PowerPoint (laughs) to transition on the on the free version of Adobe Premiere. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, none of the fancy wipes. (laughs) Yeah. I I I wonder if this is related. I'm not sure it is, but it. You know, when you were talking about the light touch being this sort of related to indie, but also related to like old art European cinema, it brought me back to the question of plot that we brought up at the mm-hmm. beginning. And I would love to hear like why this movie made you think about plot or like why this movie in doing what it was doing made you think that plot was being played with as a concept Mm-hmm. Um, for me, um, and I'll try to say this without doing a spoiler, but for, for me, it came down to the, or, or like, I, I was really thinking about this in the ending. Um, and basically like, essentially because it does something very different from what I think a lot of art house slash indie movies do as an ending gesture. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I'm so used to art house indie slash indie whatever movies ending with ambivalence in a way that uh, basically non-commitment you might say right Mm -hmm. so ending with a totally like a beautiful image that doesn't say anything in particular that can be read in any which way cut to credits right and you know what what that makes me think of is also like I was listening to I think David Fincher talk about the last scene of the social network. Um, I don't know if you remember the last scene of the social network. I don't, but the last shot of to. the social network. It's like of Mark Zuckerberg's face and he's doing like a sort of like unreadable expression. And in the commentary of the scene, David Fincher's like this is what in the industry we call a certain kind of expression. And I forget like what the, what the name of the expression is, but like apparently it is so commodified and so frequently used that it has like a jargony name. (laughs) And it's basically like you tell the actor to do this like Mona Lisa-esque face so that the the audience can project whatever they want on it. And that really like, that really like floored me. Right. Which is like, this is like, something that I recognized from like, like 90% of like the independent slash art movies that I've seen, (laughs) like in my life. But it is it is such a commodified, like standard move that you have this like super commercial director talking about using it at the end of the social network. And basically, it's kind of like it's a gesture of letting the audience have whatever they want and like not committing to anything. Mm. And El Planeta is very different. Right. Yes. It totally commits to something at the end. And no that Zucker was face. no Zucker face. And I just love that. Like it was so refreshing to see somebody actually end a movie with a move, like to pick yeah. a move and to end there and to commit to it. 
and not worry about like it, it really feels like to end a movie like that you have to not worry about like am I cheapening the movie it does this gesture undersell the movie like you really just have to commit to to like a genre um, yeah. and and it reminds me of the of the ending of rules of the game too yeah. right like rules yeah. of the game it, it commits to something yes. and it it forces you to read it as opposed to framing itself to being open to any reading, which feels yes. like a slight difference. I think it's not obvious in, until the movie's over in the case of both El Planeta and in um, Rules of the Game. But in fact, the ending was inevitable. The story had mm. to end in the way that it did or it mm. wouldn't be truly told. Mm. You know, so it, it feels like the ending is very earned, I guess. It's sort of like yeah. the... Um, the feeling that I had there. Mm. I wanted to ask you, Dan, a little bit, um, you know, what your thoughts were about the relationship between the mother and the daughter and how that might be different than the mother-daughter relationship that we saw in Relic, which we watched mm. together and talked mm. about um, on our, our first episode. Mm. Yeah, and then maybe we can talk about this movie and Francis Ha too. And maybe like that oh, could yeah. be like a nice way to wrap up to compare this yeah. movie to, to these other yeah. two. Um, okay. So the, the mother daughter relationship in relic. Um, yeah. I mean, first of all, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Um, Amalia, you're not going to want to miss that episode. Oh yeah. You're going to, you're going to lose your shit. We do. We do like a great job analyzing that movie. You'll be very <laughs> impressed. Amalia. <laughs> Oh my god, are we on a first name basis with Amalia? With Amalia, yeah. <laughs> um, seriously, Amalia, if you're listening, we we uh, revere you so much. This is a great movie. We loved it. <laughs> oh, we're laughing, but we're serious. It was so yeah, good. It was incredible. You, you were you were really shaken by it. I think like I, I was. Yeah. I, I don't. Were you? I I got the sense that you were you weren't expecting to love it so much. Like, mm-hmm. I think we were setting up just to watch a random thing at Sundance. I had picked, like, a short list of movies. It kind of felt to me like you were just like, all right, I'll just pick something <laughs> like Dan wants. And I, I feel like your reaction from texting after, like, you really loved it. I was really moved. I think that, um, you know, this seems like such a small movie, and then by the end, it you really, like, feel the weight of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the title of the movie is something that I've been thinking about mm, too. So it's yes. called El Planeta. Yes. We, um, a, a few minutes ago when you were talking about like how everything takes place in this really small town and yet we get such a sense of like the larger world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like by the end of the movie and also just the sense that there are so many larger dramas happening either around like globalism and fashion around mm. like feminism and mm. like, eternal problems that women have um, mm. when dealing with men, when dealing with prostitution, when dealing with sort of, um, you know, just like what it means to sort of like be an economic individual in mm. a world that doesn't really give you those tools. Um, but also just like the crisis of global warming and of like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just a sense of like what is going to happen to places like Gihon that, mm-hmm. you know, like don't have any of the tools that would be able to weather the kind of economic crisis that this town went through. Um, For her, it's like, her... Yeah, this movie was, I think like it really hit me on, on those other levels too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think for sure for her, it's kind of about how gender absorbs all of these stresses, right? So you have these kind of global planetary stresses and how does that kind of coalesce and get absorbed in gender, which is sort of like the like the the breaking point, right? Or like when the stress is filtered down and when you don't have a cushion, gender is one of the places that these like really big stresses get felt. Um, and then also about like, um, sovereignty and nationalism too, right? I noticed that like in the in the credits, she says this was filmed in Guillaume, and then, but then she doesn't say Spain. She says the name of the Asturias. Asturias, and I don't know what the convention is. I I tried to Wikipedia a little bit, but I didn't spend that much time. So do you know like what is the status of Asturias in relation to Spain? Did you look that up at all? I wasn't sure. I had a similar question. Like, I wasn't sure Mm -hmm. even, like, I mean, I know that there's some issues with, like, Catalan regions in Spain Mm -hmm. and sort of, like, the sovereignty of those regions. And I was just curious, you know, if this was something similar, parallel. Right. Yeah, I right. I, I mainly know about Catalan, which is like more in like the south, right? And mm-hmm. and Guillaume is in the north. So maybe it's this thing where like Italy, like relatively recently, like Spain was like a bunch of independent sort of states with their own languages and their own cultures. Yeah. And then like and so in the in the credit sequence, um, it's this visit from the royal family. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of like documentary footage of different people who represent kind of different points along the political spectrum's reactions to the royal family. Mm -hmm. So some people are like, oh, I just want to see a royal. I'm so excited. (laughs) And other people are like, we want to show up to them because like we want to show them like we are Spain. We are Spain. Right. And then there are people who I think the movie describes as like on the left. I forget Mm -hmm. what moniker they're given, but they're like they're more like critical and like they have more of a consciousness of like the independence of the region in relation Mm -hmm. to the claims of the monarchy and et cetera, et cetera. So in the, in the credits, the movie kind of zooms out and makes that case. Right. But it feels like it coexists with sort of what the movie is trying to say about gender. Right. Yeah. And actually the, so the gender thing brings me back to um, when we were recapping the date so after she finishes the date and then she walks in the beach and then she comes back to the apartment and the mom is standing up, staying up, like waiting for her. Or we, we don't know if she's waiting for her, but she's there. And I don't know about you, but I was expecting the movie scene slash life scene where the mom's like, where were you? Sure. That would be like the tiny furniture direction. <laughs> The movie, I think. Right, right. Yeah. Because we've seen tiny furniture, that would be the scene we would expect between mother and daughter. Yeah. I feel like tiny furniture is not faring well in this comparison and Francis Hyde's faring much better. Mm, perhaps. <laughs> um, but then the the mom says something like, um I, I think she doesn't even ask if it went well. She just kind of infers that it didn't go well. Or she asks mm. about it and 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 Leo doesn't even say it was awful. She's just yeah. like, eh, right? And the yeah. mom like picks up that it's like not a good day. And all the mom says is, well, you know, I can't curse him because you didn't give me his name. <laughs> so the night yeah. before the mom asked what the name was and Leo wouldn't tell her, possibly yeah. because she thinks it's a dumb name. Amadeus, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the mom just says like, well, I can't curse him, you know, because you didn't give me a name and I need a name to curse. 
And I remember texting to you during the movie that like one thing that I felt was different about this movie and Relic, which is maybe also like a difference that shows us the difference between whatever genre this movie is in and the horror genre is that even though we see like a lot of, um, a lot of gender pain in this movie, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That pain is never used as a weapon between mom and daughter, right? Wow, so yeah. in that scene, like, like, like they could so easily use that against one another. For example, yes. in that scene, like the mom could be like, "Why did you stay out?" or whatever. You, you keep meeting the wrong guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they never, they never, they never, um, they never hold each other accountable for gender. And I yeah, thought that that's like, like a really. Didn't... Like, you know, they're, and the daughter, likewise, is never like, you know, you didn't take good enough care of dad or exactly. like, why didn't exactly. you like know what was going on with his finances, et cetera. Yeah. And I think that that is so much the tone of the movie, right? Because mm-hmm. like another, like that, that's sort of like the more obvious move of them blaming each other for gender. Mm-hmm. And that would totally shift the movie away from the tone that it has. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, Dan. Thank you for going to Sundance with me. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. Are we going to talk about Francis Ha? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this and Francis Ha. Um, I mean, I guess one, one question is, you, were, you started by saying something about characters who are really funny and the funniness being a kind of manifestation of their lack of awareness of what's to come, like an, an insufficient kind of grasp of the situation. So how would you compare this movie and like Leo, let's say, to Francis Ha? Um It's kind of hard for me to answer because it's been a while since I saw Francis Ha. I mean Francis Ha is different because that one's so much a movie about like a woman's a young woman's arrested development. So mm-hmm. her not realizing childhood is over. Um, my roommate has a serious relationship or, you know, like my roommate is growing up at a speed that is Mm -hmm. faster than what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't just kind of dick around in New York forever Mm -hmm. without Mm -hmm. a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Leo, it's not, it's not that she's in arrested development. It's that, Mm -hmm. you know, um, she's really in crisis and her whole Mm -hmm. town and family is in crisis. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know. I mean, the situation is so different there. Like, it's not just growing pains. It's not merely a case of growing pains. It's like, what happens when the pains are for your whole town or for your home? Maybe we can... I like that a lot. Um, Maybe we can start with, like, like a, um, a scaffold reading, and then we can discard it as we progress to like a more um, nuanced reading. The yes, scaffold I love reading... discarding things. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Let's scaffold it and discard. Sounds good. So the scaffold reading would be like, Francis Ha is such an American movie, right? Yeah. Where instead of it being structural, it's like this happy-go-lucky person is going along. She's like barely skirting disaster until disaster hits in the form of like personal realization. And then the the coda of the movie is her kind of reattuning herself 
and finding a way to flourish again, even mm-hmm. though the conditions haven't much changed. And the yes. ending also invokes laughter, right? So it ends in a place of comedy that comes from the truncation of her name, right? Mm-hmm. Like And also the, ha, the identity the herself, yeah. Yeah. Like that, you know, she is reborn as Frances Ha. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's the scaffold argument... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. What else can we say? It doesn't it doesn't really feel like Leo needs to realize anything, right? Like she has like a pretty good it, which is not to say that she's masterful, right? She's mm-hmm. not living her life masterfully. Like what would that even mean when mm-hmm. like she's living in a world with the conditions of the world? But yeah. there's not a sense of like like when you watch Frances Ha, the whole time you're thinking of the thing as like like a, like a personal journey. Right? You're just like, oh my god, Francis Ha, like, when is... <laughs> you know? I think that you're on something there that, like, it's never that Leo is particularly at fault for anything. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Leo contributes to some of the scams that her mother is doing, or she enables some of the scams, um, yeah. even though she's not really an equal partner. But, um, I mean, it's not... I think you're right that like what would it what would it look like for her to mm-hmm. have a better life? That would be so hard to imagine because mm-hmm. everything about her social context and her familial context and the economic situation that's been handed down to her would have to be different. And it's it's so damn hard for that to be changed, you know. I think that brings us back to the question of plot, which is if in Francis Ha what what becomes plot is the American story of tragedy and then self-rebirth. And that's what becomes the thing that holds this just like bunch of scenes of comic suffering together. What do you think holds this movie together, if not that? Because hmm. it, it doesn't feel to me like, you know how some indie movies feel very digressive and it's just yes. like a bunch of scenes in a row. And this did not feel like that to me at all. It does, It felt together. It felt like it had an arc. Yeah. You know, it I felt like... That, I think that you're right that the timeline that we get at this at the beginning of the movie, pretty mm. much, that like we have two months left, like this real sense of, you know, like we're on the we're on borrowed time right now like this mm-hmm. isn't going to last forever mm-hmm. um in fact it's already starting to end mm-hmm. i think is part of what leads to that like stronger sense of um structure mm-hmm. i mean there's something extremely quixotic about this movie too mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. say that you know there's something about mm-hmm. like which is probably having... where the word quirky comes from <laughs> possibly um any etymologists out there, please please email <laughs> watchingfilmpod at gmail.com. That's a real email address, by the way. Yeah, that's a real email address. <laughs> um, you know, like, I think that there's something, there's the tragedy of, like, quick, quick thoughtism itself, which is, like, mm-hmm. a person who dares to dream beyond, like, right. what is reasonable for their circumstances. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's sort of like, I think that's what I was trying to tap into with my haiku, right? Mm-hmm. I think you're... Can you you're say totally... that again, please? 
Yeah, so I think there's like two ways to read the folly of the quixotic in this movie. Um, so I think what the way that you were attuned to was the idea of the quixoticism, the, the quixity is an illusion. <laughs> and what happens to illusions is they shatter at some point and then realism yes. floods in. Yes. And I think I was attuned to a different way of thinking about the quixotic. Um, and my so my haiku was, a divine peace falls when the only unknown is the question of when. I felt like the, the source of the mom's humor and the mom's ability to still kind of hold a world together so well for her daughter um, was the fact that she knew it was going to end, right? Yeah. She knows that the con will end. And once you know it's going to end, and it's just a question of when, then there's a kind of freedom there, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's nothing that's unknown about the future. And the movie is kind of like the space between the time when you realize things are going to end and when they end. Mm. And that's sort of like the little comic bubble that exists in the midst of like the tragedy that's sort of the background of the movie. Mm. At least that's how I saw it. That's really lovely. I can see where your question about, you know, about the obliviousness or not of the characters was coming from better now. Yeah. I love, I'm so glad, I feel like that's, I, I love that we, that we arrived in a place that we were able to see both that we saw options in what the movie was going for and also that we were able to relate them. I'm, I'm very satisfied with that. Yeah, <laughs> I think too. I, I think we did good for today. This was a great Sundance experience for me, Dan. I mean, totally, totally different than any other Sundance experience, obviously, yeah. but I'm... I'm glad, you know, we still found a way to do it. Totally. And I'm so excited on the next podcast to talk a little bit about some of your experiences at Sundance growing up. I would love to hear yeah. some stories of you going and the movies you saw and what it was like there. So um, let's do some of that on the next episode when we when we also talk about the Utah Jazz. Okay. So that this is just first the first part of the Utah Spectacular. This is but part one part of the Utah Spectacular. Part two of the Utah Spectacular is still coming up, Amalia. So please right. subscribe yeah, so in. you don't miss that. Tune in. If you're a basketball fan, Amalia, boy, have we got some good <laughs> content in store for you. Yeah. Amalia, we won't be talking about you on the next podcast. No, but, but leave us five stars anyway. Leave us five stars. <laughs> Thanks for watching Film With Me, TT. Thanks for going to Sundance with me, Dan. <laughs>